Good evening, church. Let us stand together and hear from God's word. We'll begin with the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is good news for us tonight. So let us hear this call from our gentle Savior. Let us come, let us rest and rejoice. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Spirit washed in his blood. Blessed assurance, sing it out. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood.
Good evening, church. I love that song. I love that, um, that idea, that need for assurance, right? I don't know if you, if you feel that sometimes, um, that temptation to doubt or to wonder if, if what I believe is true, if what I believe about myself is true. And uh, as one of my friends put it once, the church is an assurance of salvation club. We're all in this together, and we all work together to encourage one another that what we think is true is true, and we remind each other. And one of the best ways that we do that is we meet together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder, it's a rehearsal of the things that we, that we say have happened in the past, that, that we believe are true for us now, and, and the hope that it holds out to us in the future. So, brother or sister, if you come in here and you're, you're weary and you're heavy laden, this is a time for you to be reminded of what is true, that Jesus has already done all the work for you, amen, and that you have rest. We have rest in Christ, that we have assurance, and, 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 and we have to work at reminding ourselves. And so I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that we get to spend time together tonight for this. Before we jump in, uh, Pastor Ryan wanted to give away a couple of books to you guys tonight, and so I wanted to make these available to you um, and tell you about them. They sound great. I haven't gotten to read these yet, but I've read reviews on them, and I've heard good things. And so um, these are, this is for the first person that raises their hand, but let me tell you about this book. This is called Competing Spectacles by Tony Reinke. Tony Reinke works for Desiring God, and the idea of this book is uh, that our eyes are exposed to so many different spectacles in the world that we live today, so many different things that are calling for our attention in media or on, you know, in, in pages or, or whatever it is, that we are always being asked to look at things that aren't necessarily bad things, but they're not ultimate things, and yet we're also called to behold the glory of God. And so how do we, how do we keep that tension in mind between these competing spectacles that are calling for our attention. So really it's just a, a very practical book about how to live in a world where there's a lot of media distractions and uh, a lot that um, can, can take our eyes off of Christ. So it would be very helpful, especially if you, like me, feel that twitch to uh, get on your phone and, and spend way too much time looking at stuff that, you know, isn't necessarily bad, but it's not ultimate and and try to figure out how to navigate this world so anybody feel like this would be a helpful book raise your hand right there all right come on well, I don't want to let's you know that would be a bad idea let's not do that and if that's really good share it with somebody else okay that's called Competing Spectacles by Tony Reinke. And then this one is in a similar vein. I'm really excited about this one. Um, it's called The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken. And I don't know if you can see the picture that's on the front of this, but he's kind of riffing off of the idea of a food pyramid, which I guess the, it's the old food pyramid because they changed the food pyramid, right? But this is the old food pyramid that maybe you grew up with like I did where it's, you know, it's, it's actually got bread at the bottom, right? Isn't that that's like you should eat the most bread? Not accurate. Uh, 
but it's kind of the idea that, you know, there's, there should be this main source and then these other things. And, and this is a pyramid, not for uh, the intake of food, but for the intake of wisdom. What should be the, the source of wisdom? Again, when we live in a world where there are just so many messages that are all bombarding us all the time, how do we kind of navigate? And so I'll even just go through this. He's got as the, the foundation of it, the word of God. And then the next is the church, okay? Then the next is nature as a source of wisdom. So I'm excited to crack into that. That's cool, right? Um, and then the next, this looks like a bunch of really good books, which I would agree with. And then beauty as another source of wisdom. And then up here, really small at the top, is a little cell phone, right? So uh, <laughs> that, that could be just the thesis of the book right there. But I think this would be a really, really helpful book. So who would like this, this book? Mike, was that you? Did you get it? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll give this to you afterwards. Okay. All right. So check both of those books out. Um, I plan on looking into those, but that actually really ties in with what we're talking about today, which again with the Lord's Supper is, um, it's for this time as we live in this present age, this age that is, is difficult to navigate, that uh, we rely, we, we need to be nourished by God, and that is how we walk in wisdom in this world that is so complex. And so even if you're not reading books like this, just a time like this hopefully is helpful to that end. So let's pray for that and then we'll start singing again, okay? God, I thank you for your wisdom that you have revealed to us through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would fill us all with that wisdom tonight. And Lord, the beginning of that wisdom is just a fear of you, a right fear that we stand before you as um, sinful people, and yet you are a gracious God. So we thank you for your son Jesus who uh, forgives, us, forgives us of our sins and allows us to worship you rightly, to know you and to know how to be in this world that you have created. So God, I pray that you would use this time, be glorified, use the, the songs that we sing and the words that we hear preached to that end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna stand again. Part of what we do when we sing together is we instruct one another in the truths of God's word. So we'll use this question and answer style song to instruct our own hearts and instruct those around us that these things are true, that Christ is our only hope in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hands? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope in life and death. What truths can come? A troubled soul. God is good. God is good. Is His grace and goodness known in our great Redeemer's blood? Who holds 
holds our faith when fears arise who stands above the stormy trial who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore the rock of Christ oh say oh What shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Yes. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. Then we will rise to meet the Lord. And sin and death will be destroyed. is ours forevermore. Hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope and life and death. Lift your voices, sing. No,
you can be seated. So our passage tonight is from Titus chapter 2. So if you want to turn there in your Bible. Titus is in the New Testament. It's up near the back of your Bible. And if I sound like I'm sniffling, I am. My allergies have been bad today. Anybody else have an allergy problems? That, that encourages me that I don't have coronavirus. Okay, if more. Uh, I've been taking my temperature. I'm fine. But if I sound funny, that's what, what it is. So we're in Titus chapter 2. We'll look at this paragraph near the bottom of that chapter, verses 11 through 14. My wife put me onto these verses a couple of weeks ago. I think they're new favorites, new favorite verses. So, of course, usually whatever I'm studying at the time becomes my new favorite, but these might last. Beautiful verses. So let me read these verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing grace that you have shown to us in Jesus. Thank you for this word that helps us to understand it. I pray that you would help us to understand it, that the things that I say and the things that we think about would be right and pleasing in your sight. Amen. Amen. So can we talk about Lord of the Rings for a minute? Yeah? Okay. So for everything that is great about the Lord of the Rings, there's one thing that uh, I hear people, especially on the internet, seem to take issue with, and that's the eagles. Okay, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) But the eagles, the great eagles, are these characters that appear in the Tolkien stories just a few times, a handful of times, and they always show up at the moment when the heroes are in the like worst possible situation and there is no way for them to save themselves. So like when Gandalf is stuck on the top of the Tower of Isengard, the stronghold of the dark wizard Saruman, and there's no way for him to escape. Or when Sam and Frodo are in the cracks of Mount Doom and the fire is just exploding all around them at the last moment, the last possible second, these giant semi-divine eagles swoop in out of nowhere and they grab the heroes and they snatch them away and they carry them off to safety. And a lot of people accuse Tolkien of lazy writing at those moments. Like he just writes the characters into a, a trap that he can't get them out of and so just to kind of resolve this plot problem, he sends these eagles in to kind of make everything right again. But I don't think that's what is going on with the eagles. I think the author did intend to write these characters into a situation that they couldn't get themselves out of, but I think for Tolkien, who was himself a devout Christian, these eagles were a picture of what we might call an appearing. That's a word that is in our text twice, appearing. It's, it's the Greek word from which we get the word epiphany. 
It can mean, uh, in the original language, a bright light breaking through the darkness. It could also mean when a king or an emperor visited a city or another kingdom. But most of all, it came to mean in, in the time that the Bible was written, this idea of divine intervention, of help from God or from a God when things looked worse and you expected help the least. When things were at their worst possible moments, God would come in out of nowhere and rescue his people. It's an appearing. And I think that's what Tolkien had in mind with the eagles, that we all will find ourselves at some point in a situation where where we need to be rescued and we can't rescue ourselves and we need help that comes from outside. And that's what this passage is about tonight. The appearing of God's grace. An epiphany of God's grace. So we've got four verses here. And we'll do it in four points with four G words. So grace, godliness, glory, and gospel. Those are our four points tonight. Grace, godliness, glory, gospel. One for each verse. So we'll get into this first point, grace. Look at verse 11. Four. Okay, stop right there. Four. That means that Everything that came before it depends on what is happening right here. So it's really important to see that, that this context, that this, this point is coming into. This letter to Titus, if you haven't read it in a while, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his closest companions. Sometime after the events recorded in the book of Acts, after Paul gets out of prison in Rome, he goes with this man Titus on another missionary journey to a, a, a little, or actually a large island in Greece called Crete. Okay, it was, a, it was a big island and it had lots of big cities. And he goes with Titus, whom he calls in this letter his true child and a common faith. And they preached the gospel in each of those cities. And it would appear that they were really successful, that they started a whole network of churches on this large island. And so that, after they got these churches started, the Apostle Paul goes to Greece to keep on working. But he leaves Titus there in Crete. And he tells him in chapter 1, verse 5 of the book of Titus, Put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town. So that's Titus's mission, is to put what remains in these churches in order and to raise up godly leaders in these churches. And that's easier said than done. The culture of Crete was notoriously unvirtuous. It was common throughout the Greek-speaking world that if somebody lied to you, you would call them a Cretan. Okay, so being a Cretan was synonymous with lying. Actually, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, Even one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. There Paul is citing the Cretan poet Epimenides. And then Paul adds in verse 13, This testimony is true. Ouch. Not only were the Cretans dishonest and greedy and grossly sexually immoral, but they actually took pride in these things. They took pride in their vices. They rooted their sinful behavior in the worship of the Greek god Zeus that they believed was born on the island of Crete and was himself a liar and greedy and grossly sexually immoral. And so they just said, we're just imitating our God, Zeus. This is what he's like. This is what we do. 
And this is the culture in which Paul has left Titus to establish healthy churches and to raise up godly men and to teach Christians to live lives in such a way that it's utterly contrary to everything around them and everything that they themselves have even known. It's a seemingly impossible mission that Paul has left Titus for. But we know that with God, all things are possible. If you look at the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 1, Paul charges Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So not just teach sound doctrine, but to teach what accords with or comes along with sound doctrine, which we know from the verses that follow, he's talking about godly living. So look at verse 2. It says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In verse 3 it says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And verse 4, So train the young women to do the same things, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That's... The word of God may not be reviled, verse 5. Paul goes on to address younger men in the same way, and then even slaves and how they relate to their masters. In verse 7, Paul encourages Titus himself to be a model of good works and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And then verse 10, the Cretans are to live this way, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So their good works, their countercultural virtue, it's an adornment on their doctrine. It emphasizes, it accentuates their doctrine. I want to just stop here, church, and challenge us a little bit because we are a church that loves sound doctrine, right? And, and as well we should, and we're about to get into some sound doctrine in these verses, but I, I would ask you, what adorns your sound doctrine? Do you have tulip nailed down? You can rattle off all five of the doctrines of grace, but there's something in your life that outsiders would find condemnable? Are you all clear on where you stand on the eternal subordination of the Son, but you're actually kind of a jerk? Okay, it's not just enough to have sound doctrine. God also wants us to adorn our doctrine with right living that, that accords with, that goes along with that sound doctrine because it makes the gospel beautiful. It makes the gospel attractive to the people outside that are looking in. It's like what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Philippians 2.15 that we are to do everything in such a way that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Or what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So Paul's urging Titus to train these Cretans to live in such a way that their life testifies to a better God, a better God than Zeus, the lying God, than Zeus, the cheating God. He wants them to live their lives in a way that testifies to a holy God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to a God who is gracious 
So we've got to see that all of that instruction in chapter 2 precedes our passage. It comes before these verses. And with this word for, in verse 11, Paul is rooting everything that he said about their right living in what is coming next. Okay, so everything that he said about doing what accords with sound doctrine is rooted in sound doctrine right here in these verses. 11 to 14 are the sound doctrine. So this is kind of the opposite of the way like Paul does the book of Ephesians where he starts with the sound doctrine in chapters 1 to 3 and then he ends with the right living in 4 to 6. This is just the other way, but it's still the same thing that all of this call to right living is rooted in this sound doctrine and the basis of that doctrine is the grace of God. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we know that word grace, right? It means blessing or or favor that's entirely undeserved and freely given by someone else. And here it's the grace of who? Of God. This is grace that comes from God. God is the one that freely gives. God is the initiator. God is the sole actor, And what does Paul say the grace of God has done? It's appeared. There's our word. The grace of God has appeared out of heaven for us. Undeserved and unexpectedly when we needed it the most, when our situation could not have been worse. And how did the grace of God appear? In Jesus Christ. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were just as sinful as these Cretans that were liars and beasts and lazy gluttons, when we were all rightly standing under the condemnation of God and were to be the recipients of his wrath, when we were doomed and there was no way that we could save ourselves, the grace of God appeared. At just the right moment, the Son of God came down from heaven and took on human flesh. He visited us. He shined the light of God into the world. And he lived a perfect life on our behalf. He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. And then he rose again victoriously from the dead. And when he did that, he conquered all of our enemies that threatened us. And he freed us from the wrath of God. And then he ascended back to the Father. All of that, all of that is an appearing of the grace of God. Just like those eagles. It was a rescue. That's why Paul roots it in that word salvation. You see that in verse 11. He says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, bringing rescue for all people. We know all people, it doesn't mean all people in the world without exception. That would be universalism. But it means all people in the world without distinction. Anybody that would believe this, whether you're a man or a woman or you're a slave or you're a free or you're a a sinful Cretan or a self-righteous American, it doesn't matter. Anybody that would believe can be rescued from their sin. And that's amazing grace. But it's not just a grace that saves us from our sin. It's also a grace that trains us in godliness. That's verse 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I think this is so cool. 
You got to keep it in context, okay? Paul has given this long list of instructions all up in through chapter two, up to this point for how the Cretans are to conduct themselves. But he's not saying this right behavior, this, this acting in a self-controlled and sober way, that's not what saves you. Do you see that? That's not what saves you. It's the grace of God that saves you. And that grace has already appeared. And yet on the basis of that grace, I am commanding you to do these good works. And still, even those good works, they don't come out of our own strength. They too are a result of grace. Because that's, that's Titus's only hope, right? Imagine what he's thinking when, when Paul helps him plant these churches. and like, all right, see ya. Make these guys live godly lives. These guys? You know what they were doing just a few months ago? kind of lives that they were living? How in the world am I supposed to find elder qualified men out of a group of people like this? God's grace. God's grace can do that. And so we ask ourselves, how in the world can we live godly lives? Don't you know what I've been? Don't you know what I struggle with? But it's the same grace. The same grace that saves you is the grace that trains you to do these good works. They're the result of God's grace actively intervening in your life to produce the fruits that he requires and that you couldn't produce in yourselves. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then what does verse 10 say? For... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace through faith, and the thing that God saved us for is good works that also come from his grace that he has prepared for us, has recreated us in Christ to do. But we shouldn't take all of that to mean that even though, even, or even these good works are the result of grace, that they just appear magically out of us. Like we don't play some part in that. I think that would be to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. I think that's why the Apostle Paul in our verse uses the word train. It trains us. That word train, it's the same word that, uh, that you would use about a teacher educating a student. Or a parent training a little kid, even disciplining a little kid so that they can behave the right way. It's this very active process. I was thinking about uh, my wife and our daughter. They're, they're doing a lot of training. My wife is doing a lot of educating for her at home and how to read and how to do math. And so they're doing a lot of flashcards. You guys remember the flashcards? Kristen will hold up the flashcard and Evie has to read what it says. And this is my wife training her. And one, I was just thinking, what an act of grace training is. Those of you that are parents, those of you that are educators, you know that. You know that, that to engage in a kid like that, that can sometimes feel very much like a, a flesh-tearing sacrifice and an act of love. But how are these kids going to figure it out on their own? They can't. They need somebody from outside to love them, to give them this training. It's a, it's a gift. It's a, it's a grace. It's a love but my daughter is not passive in that process. She is looking at the flashcard and she is having to try and understand what's going on there. She is working under that training to grow and to learn. And verse 12 says that God's grace is training all of us like that, like little children. Isn't that amazing? God's grace is training us to be what he saved us to be 
in Jesus Christ. And I think the primary way that he does that is by helping us behold Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That we behold the image of God, Jesus Christ, and as we behold that image, we are transformed by degrees into that same image. It's like God is holding Jesus up on a flashcard to all of us. He's saying, this is my son. This is what he looks like. This is how he lived. This is how he loved me. This is how he loved others. This is what he suffered on your behalf. This is what an ideal human looks like. This is the last Adam. This is the image of God, and this is what I am transforming you into. Behold Jesus. And as we behold Jesus, we we participate in that. We strive to imitate what God is holding up to us in his son. Just like the Cretans imitated Zeus and it led to all kinds of wickedness and unrighteousness, we behold Christ and we imitate Christ and we become like Christ by degrees. And that's how God trains us. This is what he is doing in us. And I think that that is amazing grace. Here in verse 12, Paul gives some specific applications for what that training looks like, what it is that I think God is particularly training the Cretans in. And I think we should pay attention to this because as I studied the Cretan culture, I was thinking, this sounds a lot like us. I think Titus is a really good book for the church in our age in America. So if you have time, it's three chapters. Go and read it or go listen to it. It's really helpful, but Paul, Paul has some specific things that he thinks that God is training them in. And you'll see that the end of verse 12, there's actually a negative and a positive aspect to how God is training the Cretans and us. Negatively, God's grace trains us to renounce certain things or to say no to certain things. In this case, it's to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Anything that's, that's contrary to God's law that belongs in this world and has no place in the next. And I don't know that that's always how we think about grace, is it? That grace teaches us to say no to things. I think we like to think about grace as being liberating. That grace is about what I have freedom to say yes to. But as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. God's grace trains us to say no. To say no to the things that Jesus would have said no to. And it's a grace in itself that we actually can say no. Do you get that? That when we were sinners, we were enslaved to our sin. We didn't really have a choice. Did you, did you experience that maybe before you became a Christian? That, that there were things that you knew you didn't want to do and you'd try so hard in yourself and then you just always ended up going back like a dog to its vomit, Proverbs says. We can't say no when we're slaves to sin. But God's grace has set us free from our sin so that we can say no to our sin. And then God in his grace is training us to keep on saying no to the things that we should say no to. And then in the positive, we're trained to 
live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Brian Chapel, when he was talking about this verse, he says that God's grace trains us to say no and to live yes. To live yes to self-control. Self-control means being sober or temperate. Self-control is not being ruled by your passion. Self-control is to not find yourself in that situation where you screw up and then you look back and you say, I don't know what happened. You know what happened? You lost control of yourself. You went on autopilot and you let your flesh take over. And God's grace trains us to live self-controlled lives where we don't let that happen. And by God's grace, we can be self-controlled. We can be thoughtful and intentional. This is like the books that we talked about that we just gave away, that we can be intentional about what we put in front of our eyeballs. We can be intentional about what we read. We can be intentional about what we think about and what we do and what we participate in. We can be in control of ourselves and control it in that direction of the glory of God. We can do that, and God's grace trains us to do that. God's grace also trains us to live, yes, to being upright. That word's literally just, to be just people. And I think in this context, that means in particular with relationship to other people. So think again about the Cretans. God's, God's grace is training us not to be liars, not to be swindlers, not to run around and cheat on each other. And not just negatively, it's training us to be loving to our neighbors. It's training us to be good and just people that see other people in need and we have compassion on them and we help them because we are just people like God is just. And lastly, God's grace trains us to live yes to godliness. Godly lives in the present age. And you see with those three things that he gave us, it's kind of a whole life kind of orientation that it's how we relate to ourselves and self-control. It's how we relate to others and justice and it's how we relate to God in godliness. And so this is God's grace training us in the whole life of Christian discipleship. And godliness is just the opposite of ungodliness that we renounced. Godliness means that God is your concern. You live your whole life, quorum Deo, before the face of God. You have this sense that everything is happening in the presence of God. And so you don't put God on the shelf for a few hours at a time or a few days at a time. Everything that you're doing, you're mindful that God is watching God is with you, and so you want to live in a way that glorifies him. And all of this is a tall order. As I think about these things, I just think about how I fail in so many ways. And then I think back to those flashcards. When my little girl gets the flashcard wrong, my wife just keeps training her. Says, nope, let's try that one again. I want to conform you into the image of my son. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm a perfect teacher. And I will keep on training you in godliness. God has promised that he will conform us into the image of his son. He's not going to give up on us. He's going to keep on working on us. And he's going to keep on disciplining us if he has to. But he loves us so much that he's not going to let us go away. He has predestined us and called us and justified us so that we would be glorified. That's his plan, and he's not going to deviate from it. He's not going to fail in that effort. He will train us until we are glorified like his son. Amen?
And that's our next point, 13. Glory. We're trained in godliness in this present age. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So verse 11 is about something that's happened in the past. God's grace has appeared in Jesus Christ and it has effects that lead into the present. Verse 12 is about the present age, that we are being trained in godliness in this present age. And then verse 13 shifts to look at the future, what Paul calls our blessed hope. And what is our blessed hope? It's another appearing. See that? It's the same word. It's another appearing. The appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And don't miss what that verse is saying. This is a really important verse because this is Paul saying Jesus is God. This is the plainest reading of that passage. Jesus Christ is our God and Savior is how he is saying that. And just like Jesus appeared to us in the past coming down out of heaven to save us from our sins, he's going to appear again. So while we wait in this present evil age and we struggle and we suffer, we, we even work under God's discipline and we cry out, how long, O oh Lord, we look forward and we wait for that day when Jesus does appear again in glory, when he comes again out of heaven, this time with thousands and thousands of his mighty ones lighting up the sky like a bolt of lightning with a, with a loud trumpet blast. And all of us who have trusted in him, both the living and the dead, we will be gathered with him and we will see his glory and we will be glorified with him. We will be transformed, given new resurrection bodies, and we will live and reign with him in this glorious kingdom forever and ever and ever. And on that day, we won't struggle with ungodliness and worldly passions. And that day, we won't have to say no to anything anymore because all there will be is glory. Do you get that? We will be finally conformed to that image. That's our blessed hope. And it is a blessed hope, amen? And this is what we wait for. We wait for it. We say it's our hope, not like, I hope that happens. No, we say, this is my hope. It will happen. And I just gotta wait for it. And knowing that it will happen and setting my mind on what will be encourages me in this present age so that no matter what happens to me today, no matter what I'm struggling with, no matter where I'm falling short, no matter what I'm saying no to that I wish I could be saying yes to, no matter what challenges or tribulations I'm facing, I know that I have this blessed hope waiting for me, and so I just have to wait for it. And God's grace is training me today in this present age for that day. He's preparing us now for the glory that will appear when Christ returns, even in the moments where we're suffering the most, even in the moments where it's the hardest in this present age. That is God training us for that day. Second Corinthians four seventeen. This light momentary affliction that you are undergoing in the present age is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so that's what we look forward to. 
We look forward to that glory that's yet to appear. And, and guys, as we, as we look forward to that glory and as we behold the glory of Christ now and that hope, it actually makes us glorious right now. That training that God does, it makes our doctrine adorned with the glory of God's righteousness. And so we're shining that glory in this present age so that other people through us and through our good works would see the light of the Father and they too would share in this blessed hope with us. They too would believe in Jesus Christ as our God and our Savior. And that's who all of this is about. All of this from beginning, middle, and end is all about Jesus Christ. And that's where it goes in verse 14. To this idea of the gospel. It says, Jesus Christ, verse 14, is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Pastor Ryan likes to call verses like these a gospel nugget. It's like one verse that, that captures the whole gospel in it so that if you were with somebody else and you were trying to share the gospel with them, you could go to one of these gospel nugget passages and just say, look, this is everything that you need to know about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Verse 14 is a gospel nugget. Because look at what it says. Jesus, what? Gave himself. That is, gave his body, gave his life. For what? For us. That is capturing substitution in just a few words that Jesus was the one for one substitute. He offered himself once and for all to die the death that we deserve to die. And why? In order to redeem us from all lawlessness. To pay the ransom price. To pay the penalty that we deserved for our disobedience. But there's more, isn't there? It's not just that Christ died to pay the price and win redemption for us, but what else does he do? He purifies us. This is what John Calvin called double grace. It's not just that he justifies us, but he sanctifies us. It's not just that he gets us up to neutral with God, but he takes us the whole way. He imputes his righteousness to us so that we stand before God just like Jesus would in complete Righteousness. It's like what we sing in the song Rock of Ages. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and what? Make me pure. God's grace does that. Jesus Christ does that. He gave himself to do that. Jesus gave himself to redeem us and to purify us so that the end of verse 14, we would be a people for his own possession, zealous for what? Good works. It all comes around. There's a lot of Old Testament language in what he's saying here. This idea of like when God rescued, redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he says, you are my treasured possession, Israel. You're my, you're my prize, you're my crown jewel. And he saved them to be a people that were righteous, a people that did good works, that had good laws, and as they lived out these good laws and these good works, the other nations around would see Israel, and they say, what kind of God do these guys have? What kind of God would produce such a just people? That was what Israel was supposed to be, and we know that they failed. 
to fulfill that purpose. In fact, we know that the covenant that God made with them when they came out of Egypt really only showed to serve how unable we are to keep God's law on ourselves and to make us long for a new covenant, for a better covenant, for a better rescue that comes from outside of ourselves, and that's what we get in Christ's appearing. I think verse 14 is an amazing expression of the new covenant hope that not only are we a people that are asked to do good works, but God has worked in our hearts, replaced our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh that actually desires to do good works, that is zealous, eager to do good works, the same good works that he has been commending them to do in the first place. That's what God's training us for, training us in our very inward being, not just external conformity to his commandments, but an inward desire to be like Christ as we behold Christ, to be a people that are eager to say no and to live yes to all that he commands. So the grace of God has already appeared in the past. And we stand in the present under that grace, being trained by that same grace as we look forward to the glory that will be revealed to us when Christ returns. And that's what this meal represents to us. When we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus says that we do it in remembrance. We remember what Jesus has done, giving himself for us on the cross in our place. And as we take it, we remember that we're one people together. We're one people that he has redeemed and made his possession who are all together zealous for good works. And as we take this meal right now, we express this trust that we have in what God has already done, that we are forgiven of our sins and we express that just like this food nourishes our body physically, God himself provides everything that we need to live godly lives in this present age. This meal is a reminder that God is the one who sustains us from beginning to end in our lives of godliness as we wait. And when we take this meal, the Apostle Paul says that we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. So we eat this meal in hope of the future, looking forward to that blessed hope. So before we take this meal, I'll just ask everyone in this room, is this your hope? Is this what you live in eager expectation of, that Jesus has done it all for you? And if it's not, if you haven't confessed your lawlessness to God, if you haven't believed in Jesus as your God and Savior, if you're not a Christian, then man, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here tonight. Okay, I'm glad that you get to hear this and listen to this. This is the heart of what we believe. This is the good news of Christianity. But until you believe that, then this meal doesn't make sense for you to take it because when we take this meal, we celebrate all of this. And it would be inconsistent for you to say you celebrate these things when, when you don't yet. And so what I would ask you to do as we take these elements in just a moment is that you abstain. Even if you grabbed them when you walked on the way in, it's okay, just set them on the floor. Nobody's paying attention to you, okay? But don't, don't take this meal. Instead, when we take this meal, I would just encourage you to think about this. 
Think about this amazing grace of what God is doing for us and has done for us in Jesus Christ. And, and maybe you would even believe it right now. But for the rest of us, those of you that do believe this same gospel that I have preached tonight, here's what we're going to do. When you walked in, you should have grabbed these elements. If you didn't, we're going to sing a song until you can go out and grab those really quick so that we can all take this together. But that's what we're going to do. I'm going to say a prayer, and then Drew's going to lead us in another song. Time for us to reflect on what God has done for us and Jesus. And then I will come back up here, and I will lead us all in taking the elements together. Okay? But before that, we're going to pray, and as part of that prayer, we're just going to confess our sins again. We're going to confess our lawlessness before God that he has redeemed us from and purified us of. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on this text, we do just confess our own lawlessness, that we are all the product of a sinful world, not just a sinful culture, but just a sinful world, that we have all walked in sin and there have been times this week where we have not lived self-controlled lives where we have let our flesh take over there have been times when we've been unjust there's times when we've been ungodly God we're sorry for that we're sorry that we have uh, failed to do the good works that you have asked us to do and called us to do. And so, Lord, now we confess those things to you in our hearts. God, because of our sin, we... We also confess that we are fully deserving of your judgment and wrath. And yet you have rescued us. You have appeared to us to save us when we couldn't save ourselves. And so we thank you for Jesus who has saved us, who offered himself for us so that we could be redeemed, that we could be made pure. And God, we thank you for the grace that that even now is patient with us, is kind towards us, that even when we fall so short of your glory, you keep on conforming us into the image of your son. You keep on helping us to behold your glory and making us look more like your son. And so we thank you for that grace. And we ask that you would sustain us in it until that day that you come again and we are free forever from all of the things in this world that would keep us from being what you made us to be. In Christ, in his name we pray, amen. I'm gonna stand to respond and sing in this grace. Rock of ages, glad for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which flow, be of sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me whole. Not the labor of my hand. 
your bread ready. On the night that he was betrayed, the night before he gave his body for us on the cross, Jesus was with his disciples and and he took bread. When he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, also... He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. God, we thank you for this amazing double grace. Thank you for the body of Jesus kept blameless and perfect obedience to your law and given for us in our place to save us from wrath. Thank you for the blood of Christ that washes us as white as snow that makes us pure. God, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for new hearts by your Holy Spirit that make us zealous for good works. Please help us to walk in those good works as we are sustained by your grace until that day that you come again in glory. Amen. Let's stand. Rejoice in this grace, this amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace, twas Great. 
that's your voice. said amen brothers and sisters let us go from this place living in light of both the first appearing and in the hope and glory of the of his second appearing and that that light would shine through us and we would go from this place and make the gospel beautiful to the watching world so let us go in that grace you are dismissed